All right, so <clears throat> we're going to continue. In fact, what we're doing here um, for the next several weeks, we're on week four, aren't we? Yes. Four? So what we're going to be doing is uh, we'll continue to look in the prophets. And I'm going to go, at least in the major prophets, kind of through them, uh, picking out different passages and examining them trying to again put together this this big picture okay um, so you know we're trying to that's a bit wobbly isn't it so we're trying to get a picture here of God's covenant purposes Um, and God's not an abstract artist okay God's not Kandinsky and he's not Mondrian and he's certainly not Picasso okay God is realistic he's more like the Dutch masters okay if you know about them okay actually paints real life paints things as they are so it's all right. I'm not going to put throw up a, a Dutch master here for you. Um, I might well put in some abstract art up in here. Um, but whatever goes within the picture of the Old Testament, as made out particularly by the covenants and those things that that uh, uh, touch upon them. Is going to be uh, cohesive. It's going to be uh, variegated, and yet it's going to also coalesce. It's going to come together as well. It's not always going to be understandable from our vantage point. Just as there are many things that are not understandable for our van- from our vantage point. Uh, we know, for example, that we have eternal life. Do you understand it? Yeah, but that's not, I mean, yeah. But eternal life's not going, you know, doddering around for the rest of your, oh well, the rest of the earth days, is it? Just being miserable. Eternal life is, is enjoying the life of God. Enjoying the enjoying the fellowship and the purposes of God the character of God to the fullest because we are made anew no longer are we uh, bothered by the entrapments of sin or the limitations of sin or the corruptions and distortions of sin and therefore with our eyes newly opened and with our senses now in touch with the world the way that they should be don't worry I'm not a tree hugger but yeah, all of these false teachings they have something about them by the way okay? just, they're just heretical but they, they actually do have some uh, connection with truth all of these things you see are part and parcel of eternal life as well as endurance um, but we, we know about these things but do we know about them we don't experience them do we we can't talk about them other than in the fact that we are going one day to enter into them. But there are so many things that are 
just going to blow our minds when we really do enter into them. Okay? In a, in a small way, we might say that uh, you can see a picture of the Grand Canyon, but until you actually peer over the edge of the Grand Canyon, uh, you haven't really experienced it. Do you see? Um, and that's the case also uh, with the situation of the portrait that's going to be painted, or picture, landscape, whatever, uh, by God in the Old Testament. The things that we're going to be looking at. Please um, don't expect to see one of these there, okay? That's uh, supposed to be a church, right? Don't expect to see one of those or anything like that in the Old Testament. If you have that expectation, you're not reading the Old Testament for what it is. You're reading the Old Testament with New Testament glasses on. If you're reading the Old Testament with New Testament glasses on, one thing you're not doing is you're not reading the Old Testament the way the first Christians read it. And you're not reading the Old Testament the way Old Testament saints read it. Moreover, there's more than one interpretation of the New Testament. And maybe your interpretation of the New Testament is incorrect. And if your interpretation of the New Testament is incorrect, then your interpretation of the Old Testament is going to be incorrect if you're reading the Old Testament through the New Testament. Do you see? So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of um, hermeneutical confusion. So the church is not going to be there. We are talking or God is talking, more importantly, about Israel. And that's, that's who the prophets are. They're all members of the nation of Israel, and they're all talking to Israel. Now, they talk about the nations, and they talk about other things, but they are talking to Israel. That's very important. Um, once we get into the New Testament and we see how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, that's the time to uh, introduce the church. Okay? Do you understand that? Do you understand that patience is needed? And if we're going to uh, have a portrait of the Old Testament, then it's got to be a portrait that's given to us by the Old Testament. Let's just let the Old Testament speak. It was the scriptures of the early church. When Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you, th uh, uh, you think you have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me, in John 5, he wasn't talking about the New Testament. When Paul said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in 2 Timothy 3, 16, He's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. When he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have uh, from a child known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. He's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. You say, well, does that mean that there's 
uh, the New Testament superfluous? Certainly not. But what it does mean is that the Old Testament has its own integrity. It does mean that the Old Testament has its own voice. And it does mean that we should listen to the voice of the Old Testament without intruding the New Testament into it. Alright? It's like my preamble speech. But, uh, but I feel that I need to, to give it every now and again. What we'll do is that we'll start off with Isaiah 11 because I asked you to read that last time. Now we won't read the whole thing although the whole thing is prophetic. Well, maybe I'll touch on a, a few other things in the chapter. But look, we'll go for the first ten verses here. <clears throat> there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Now, rod and stem, obviously that's figurative language. Okay? But it's not spiritualized language. It refers to a literal uh, a literal thing okay rod and stem it has to do with from the lineage of Jesse the house of Jesse and a branch not a literal one but this is a very important uh, figure of speech that we'll come back to a branch shall grow out of his roots we understand that Jesse is not a tree we understand how figures of speech are employed then right here the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. Now, if, if we did that, by the way, I mean properly discerning things, then the world would be a better place. But we don't even do that very, very well. Uh, we don't use our eyes. Uh, Ecclesiastes says that the eye is for seeing and the ear is for hearing and we don't use them very much for either of those things. Not what we're supposed to do anyway. Um, but with righteousness, in other words, not just with mere externals, Isaiah is talking about here, with righteousness... He shall judge the poor. Right away, that disqualifies all of us. It, it disqualifies every human being, apart from one. Because we are unrighteous. He's going to judge the poor. Notice the social aspects here. God is concerned about those things. Decide with equity, fairness, for the meek of the earth. The meek of the earth tend to be downtrodden, taken advantage of, because the meek of the earth bend. That's the idea of being meek, be able to take it. And so people dish it out and the meek take it. So Jesus was meek and so he took it. Moses was meek, so he took it. Do you see? So he's going to make sure that people that take it because they know that God is watching that 
they are given justice, that they are rewarded. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Uh, This has to do with him being a, a man of justice, dealing out justice with the pronouncements of his lips. With the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Um, you know, so if you've done martial arts, they're always talking about the key. You know, the, the, the central area of power for, uh, you know, for the human body and so on. And that's the idea here, you know. It's just, the central portion of, of him is going to be power and righteousness and equity and faithfulness. So, in these first five verses, what do we find? What we find is uh, this, this individual called a branch. And he is an individual. His, he uh, are the words that are used of him. He's going to be extremely wise. He's going to be righteous. He's going to judge. Okay, that's one thing that also we get from here. He's not just going to judge locally. He seems to be able to judge the earth. Even though the earth here could be understood in a local sense, it it almost certainly doesn't mean a a local sense because of what we're going to encounter later on. Um, It also says here that um, he is going to take care of... um, of those that are downtrodden, those that are taking advantage of, he's going to protect. Those that take advantage, the wicked, he's going to deal out judgment to. So that involves some political action. I hope you can see that. Um, so even though he, at this point he's not called a king, uh, he seems to uh, have that idea. Uh, of course, we can infer that this is a king. Why can we infer it? No. No. Well, we do, but no. I'm, I'm talking about why can we infer that it's a king? He's a king from Isaiah 11. No, but that's good. Many. I like asking these questions, not because I'm mean, okay? But just, well, I am mean. But, so it's not just because I'm mean. Um, It's because I want you to pay attention to what it's saying. Okay? And what it's saying is that this person comes from uh, the root of Jesse. And who was Jesse? The father of David. And who was David? The king of Israel. Okay? Do you see? So that's what you're supposed to... Because anyone who read that in the Old Testament times, or New Testament times, would know exactly that that was a kingly line. Do you see? And I'm not trying to be mean by asking these questions of you and then saying no to all of your answers. You know, because I want you to get to be thinking, but my purpose is for you to be reading and interpreting. Okay? 
I don't want it that you're just listening to me and, and I'm spoon feeding you, if you don't mind me using that <laughs> condescending metaphor. Um, but uh, that you're actually in the process of gaining this knowledge yourself from Scripture, okay? So, we'll put up king here too. And a king was to judge. Now, clearly, verse 6 follows from verse 5. There's no interruption or anything like that. So, let's have a look what this next section says. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. So here you have um, um, meat-eating animals that we know. They're rapacious animals. And then you have lambs and young goats and you know, harmless domestic animals. And they are lying down together and a little child who's very vulnerable to wolves and leopards is leading them what's going on here well we'll um, fill out the picture okay um, I'll read down a little bit and maybe you can throw some ideas out of, of the scene that's being created by the prophet the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. That's why they can lie down together. So, although it doesn't always happen in this world, you, you can find fields where, you know, domesticated animals, uh, or at least, you know, maybe in the... Africa and, and uh, South America and so on, you can find uh, plant-eating omnivores. I think most omnivores are plant-eating, if I remember that. Thank you. Yeah, no, herbivores, that's it, herbivores. I knew that there was a, a word that I wasn't thinking, thank you. Herbivores, right. So, so we have herbivores and they tend to kind of be okay together. You know, they... they lie down together and they go to the water hole different places but they're together and nobody's bothered about each other are they? Do you see? A group of hyenas come along and you know everybody's running for it. <laughs> so uh, what we have here then is um, is a complete change in the order of nature at least the animal kingdom. Uh, so much so that the lion is now eating straw. You say, I don't believe that. The, the reproductive system of the big cat is not designed for straw eating and grass eating and so on. I'm not sure about that, actually. It may well be. Uh, you'd be surprised. I mean, um, some, uh, some meat-eating animals do eat plants. Just not mainly, but they do eat plants. But whether that's the case or not, this is what the Bible says. So you've got to deal with it because it's what it says. The nursing child, this is a little toddler, can't even walk maybe, shall play by the cobra's hole. 
So a parent's going to put the child down, maybe not walking or, you know, falling over after a few steps, near the hole of a cobra. But it's not going to be a big deal. The weaned child should put his hand in the viper's den. Because what's down here? You know? They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For reason, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All right, a uh, bit more. But what's the scene here? Give me some uh, some more information to fill out this picture. Verses six through what is it nine? Very good. Very good. Zeke gets two points. All right. Uh, so, creation. We can call it regained. Paradise regained. Something else? Well, uh, what was the uh, connection between human beings and the animal kingdom in the creation week. Utter dominion, utter authority, yes. Okay? So you see that too. I'm not politically correct, by the way. I use this for humankind. But humankind doesn't fit there, and I don't like the word. <clears throat> um, anything else from this passage? What's this? What is? Uh, what kind of words does the scene conjure up in your imagination? Okay. Tempted to give two points there to Paul. Because he's uttered two words that are very important in the prophets. Because because I am mean, I'm not going to give him two points. But um, I'm only <laughs> Come on, something else. The absence of danger. Oh, very good. Well, he's got peace and safety, but I really like. Uh, <laughs> absence of danger I like that it's not just that there is uh, safety in this scene but there's also the idea that there is no danger so that's good there's a big difference in, in the natural world Uh, not ch- difference, I'll say change. Okay, anything else? Anything else? No, has it? That's good. I, I like what you're saying there, Robert, but you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> There's a reason for it. Sorry, go on. Men seem to have more wisdom and knowledge of the 
there's a knowledge of God. Okay. Um, No, I can't do that one. Why can't I do that one? Why can't I do that one? Just a sec. No. No. What am I, what, by asking the question, what am I trying to get you to do? Well, <laughs> look at the passage. All right, look at this word here. Who's he going to judge? W- wicked. Okay? So it's in the context. Um, just one second, Mum. <laughs> I have to, uh, I have to well, let my mum ask. Well, just one sec, because I've got something to address here. I was going to give Zeke two points for his widespread knowledge of God, but he said men have widespread knowledge of God, so I'm going to take two points away from you. Because there's, there's something in the text that you're not quite seeing. Okay, so, so it says the earth. And, and why? The answer for why the animal kingdom is doing all this strange stuff is because they have knowledge of the Lord. Do you see? The whole animal kingdom is affected. The whole earth is affected by the presence of this person. Okay? Okay. <laughs> okay, Mum. Well, you beat me to it because I was going to say that the references were all about the animal kingdom. Yes. Right? Um, the only humans that were referred to are infants. Yes. Not right. Remember that the first few verses are referring to humans, judging the wicked and the meek. But yes, uh, you're quite right. Good. So I'm going to take your two points and I'm going to give them to my mum. All right. Okay. Isn't it? Uh, it's just yeah. I'm glad you understand. Um, Look at this. Uh, look at this passage, verse nine. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Is this just talking about one place then, one mountain? No, because because it's the idea here is that it's starting at the mountain. But notice how Isaiah radiates this out. He says, "For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord." as the waters cover the sea. Do you see the language that he's using? So there is going to be, as it were, displacement of this peace uh, around the globe that is brought about by the person's presence and his rule. And although some of the language might appear to be somewhat strange to us, uh, it's, it's, it's language that would be understood in that culture and would be in this, understood in that culture even today. 
in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. There we are, we're coming back to where we were in verse 1. Who shall stand as a banner to the people? Does some of you have a different translation than banner? Signal. Signal. Okay, so what's he doing then? What's he doing? He's a banner or he's a signal. What were banners for? What, ba- what are banners for? Yeah, for, for what? They call attention to what's written on the banner, don't they? Okay? So people will, will this person will, not- will, will be a banner. People will notice him. People will turn to him. And it says the Gentiles shall seek him. So it's not just Israel. It's not just local. The Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. So what we have here is a picture of... uh, Let's get this in there. Oh, we've had peace. Um, Um... can't think of a better word so I'm going to put magnet he will act as a magnet you know drawing the attention of the creation to himself and uh, the Gentiles will seek him of course I do a big H because even though Isaiah doesn't say, oh, by the way, this is Jesus I'm talking about. Um, I believe that this is Jesus that he's talking about. There's certainly a person. Let's just stay, stay there. Let's be content not to put the word Jesus on him yet. But you can if you want, because you, you'd be right to do that. Um, but they know that somebody's coming. Do you see? who's going to change the world. Now we know, pastoral application, we know that somebody is coming to change the world into this kind of a world. Um, He didn't do it at his first coming. Okay? He didn't do it at his first coming. In Psalm 22... Uh, using again figures of speech, you had the figures of speech of of animals who were kind of characters in the crowd who were baying for this person's blood as he was being killed. Psalm 22, yes? That crucifixion psalm. First coming of Christ. This isn't the first coming of Christ, folks. Very detailed, lots of stuff in it, lots of expectation in it, but wasn't fulfilled at the first coming. Unless you want to spiritualize it all. If you want to spiritualize it, then um, he's judging now, he's reigning now, he's a king now on his throne in heaven. David never reigned from heaven. Um, and all of this stuff is, is turned into 
nice sermonic, um, really spiritual platitudes. I mean, they're not real. They're just, to me, it's just pink tea, frilly, uh, hallmark way of reading the Bible. If you read it like this, it's substantial. And it gives hope, doesn't it? If you read it the other way, um, then it's like, well, big deal. Maybe I'm not, something I'm not doing right here because I'm not feeling it, you know? There's a good reason you're not feeling it. Because Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This is in the context of him going away. So, um, if, we, if you want to read a little bit more on this, uh, you'll see that particular places, Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the islands of the sea, in verse 11, are mentioned, and there is a remnant that's mentioned there in verse 11. Okay, the remnant is not all of Israel, it's just some of Israel. Um, he says he will uh, assemble the outcasts of Israel, but he says also he will set up a banner for the nations. So what we get here is that we get uh, Israel and the nations. And please, uh, please don't, uh, don't ignore that. Okay. God's going to go to Israel, but he's not contradicted by the fact that he's also going to go to the nations. He has a plan for Israel and he has a plan for the nations. John. I just skipped over the part of verse 11. Yes. That the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant. Yes. Is that referring to the second coming or what's that referring to? Yes, I believe that's referring to the second coming, yes. Because in this, uh, the remnant in this context has got to do uh, with um, Israel, for example, the northern tribes have already been gone. Uh, Southern tribes haven't in Isaiah's time. But there's already prophecies about the fact that God's going to judge, that there will be a time in the future when God will reclaim a people to his self and this is why uh, Deuteronomy 30 for example is a very important text there because they would be harking back to that text uh, those kinds of passages okay um, something I was going to say here oh yeah notice it says the four corners of the earth there in verse 12 notice it says Judah but it also says Ephraim Ephraim's kind of a collective name there that's used for the northern tribes. Um, he talks about, yeah, the Philistines and, and Moab and Edom and Ammon and all of these peoples that have disappeared into the, the books of history. So how on earth can, um, can this be second coming? Because these peoples are all forgotten and my answer is, I'm not really sure. I don't know. 
I mean, it's, it's quite easy because the, the descendants of these people are still alive and these lands still exist. Edom, for example, Moab, that's modern day uh, southern Syria and Jordan. But you, it, would be, it would be dumb for us to expect that Isaiah is going to say modern day Syria and Jordan. That would be an anachronism, wouldn't it? Uh, notice here also here um, in verse 15 and 16 look at this the Lord will utterly destroy this is the second time language by the way John the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt with his mighty wind he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in seven streams and make men cross over dry shod there will be a highway for the remnant of his people so here it seems that the, the second time refers to another exodus. Do you see? Who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. So God's going to lead Israel on another kind of an exodus. Although it's going to be different. He's going to strike it in seven uh, bits. Okay. So, have you written this stuff down? Okay, good. Go to uh, a few chapters before this. Go to chapter 9. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this you would know that passage can you see two comings in that passage the two comings of Christ you can see the first coming can't you uh, Handel's taught us all about that. Yes? Unto us a child is God, born, unto us a son is given. Yes? That's certainly... The child is the baby Jesus. That's his first coming. But where's the emphasis? What we call the second coming is the main emphasis. Rule, government, peace. This stuff is what gets the emphasis. Now, did, did Isaiah and Isaiah's readers understand that there was going to be a whacking great separation between uh, the first part of verse 6 and the second part of verse 6? No, they didn't. They were fused together. They were fused together. Please note that. There were one as it were, one work 
one work. All right. Let's move to... uh, Go to 42. <clears throat> oh, I don't know. There's all kinds. I mean, chapter 32. There's all kinds of of uh, chapters I could go to here. Um, let's look quickly at 32. Isaiah 32. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. And princes will rule with justice. Yes, there will be princes. You say, who are the princes? I have no idea. Maybe the twelve apostles. I don't know. It says, a man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest. He will be a protector of people. As rivers of water in a dry place, as the uh, shadow of a great rock in a weary land, he's going to bring relief and refreshment. The eyes of those who see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge. That means that they will, there'll be an end of their rashness and their haste, and they'll stop and actually get wise. The tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. Again, this is, this, it fits into this scenario from the human standpoint. But look at this. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness. That is what he'll do. His heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. He's going to do exactly the opposite of what this individual in the first part uh, will do. Also, the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. It's almost proverbial, isn't it? But there's more to it because it's prophetic. And it says, uh, it has uh, stuff about uh, women here, especially complacent women. Um... And then it, it moves on here and it talks about um, verse 12. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine on the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city. He's a prophet of doom here. Because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and the towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. 
the work of righteousness, I love this text, the work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. So righteousness is what we don't have. When righteousness is introduced, it has these knock-on effects. Do you see? So this is prophetic. There's going to be judgment. You see this in the prophets over and over. I'll be calling your attention to it ad nauseum. There's going to be judgment, but there's going to be a time when everything's going to be made right. Sometimes in the prophets you have the prophecy of everything being made right, and then, but, don't get you know, too complacent because here comes the bad stuff. Sometimes it's switched around in the prophets, but it's there. It's very often brought together in tandem. Now, um, let's have a look here. Notice the spirit in verse 15. The connection with the spirit and righteousness. The spirit brings righteousness. Okay. Um, one more text and then I'll ask a few questions. Do, do we need to add to this picture? I think we probably do, don't we? Um, so you don't want to throw a few more things up here? Perhaps the spirit? Anything else? Where? Very good. Anything else? That's good. Okay. Uh, Let's go to Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake. Okay. What's Zion? It's all right. No. It's all right. You just need to read. I just stopped short. This is yes, poetic parallelism here. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness. So here, you have a moral quality that uh, illuminates, lights up the world. Have you ever met a person um, who was a really holy person, godly man or woman? And it's like their, their godliness has an effect on the way that, that uh, you see the world. Mm-hmm. Her salvation 
as a lamp that burns. Salvation. Okay. Let's put that up there. The Gentiles, there it is again, as the nations, shall see your righteousness. Whose righteousness? Lord? No, no, no. Read, read it. Oh, oh. Yeah, very good, Robert. Okay. And all kings your glory, you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God you shall no longer be termed forsaken nor shall your land notice your land any more be termed desolate but and these are the new names you shall be called Hepzibah okay which has to do with delight and your land Beulah which means marriage for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Okay, so you're uh, reading Isaiah here, you're listening to him preach this stuff, and he talks about your land being married. What's, what is coming into your head? What land is he talking about? Well, who's he talking to? Who? Yeah, the land of Israel, because he's talking to Jerusalem. Yeah. So the land is married to God. And it's because it's them, obviously, the idea is that you're, the, the nation is married to God. Uh, and it talks about God rejoicing over you, and we, we see that in several places in the prophetic scriptures. Okay, so when there's a renaming in the Bible... When God renames somebody, that's because there's something important going on. So when he renamed Abraham and Sarah, that was because of their, their covenant name, okay? Because uh, of the fact that, that uh, the covenant had been enacted, and so they needed a new name. Uh, when Jacob wrestled with the angel, he was renamed Israel. Okay. Uh, Peter was renamed by the Lord Jesus. His name was Simon. Shifting sands into uh, you know rock, a more solid object. So the renaming of things marks something important, and Jerusalem is going to be renamed. Now there are several texts that we'll see as we go through here where Jerusalem or well particularly Jerusalem is going to be renamed so you think well what name is it going to have because it's going to be called Jerusalem but then it's going to be called Hepzibah and it's going to be called uh, Jehovah Shekenu and other names so which one's it going to be called well it's just like Jesus you know he'd be called Emmanuel He's not actually called Emmanuel, but he is Emmanuel. And so that's the idea of naming, do you see? You use these words because he is God with us. And when you say that he is God with us, then he is Emmanuel. Do you see? That's how the names work in the Old Testament. They signify something. <clears throat> you know, now, I mean, we just call people Bob and 
you know, Brian and things like that, and we don't even think. So you've got to get into the idea of, of uh, the naming from a biblical perspective. Um, oh, yeah, let's not forget this. Um, marriage of Israel's land to God. Okay, now we've done this, and this is just a few passages. Uh, Let's see if we can't identify some covenantal aspects of some of this stuff. So, um, when it has to do with the whole of creation, is there a covenant that deals with the whole of creation, the animal kingdom, the land, and so on? The Noahic covenant, okay? Now, I do this. I do NC. Now, New Covenant, by the way, is also NC, so I put New C. Uh, we haven't got into the New Covenant an awful lot yet. Okay, And I want to say something about that later. The Dominion of Man. That's not really a Noahic Covenant thing because that goes back to uh, Creation Week itself. So if I put CW, that means Creation Week. The, the original creation um, idea. Peace and safety and absence of danger. Can't identify that yet. You will be able to, but you can't fit a covenant with it quite yet. Uh, change in the uh, order of nature, you can say Noahic covenant because that has to do with a all of nature widespread knowledge of God among all creation not sure right now Um, the individual will act as a magnet now this individual is this guy okay who is also this guy and this guy so which covenant is this yes thank you DC Gentiles will seek him. This is a tricky one. It's, it's actually... Um, who said that? It actually is the new. But what does the... <laughs> kind of a dumb question. What does the new covenant replace? No. Nope. doesn't replace the Abrahamic. Nope. New covenant replaces what? The Mosaic. The Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic is the only temporary covenant, okay? And, but the, in the Mosaic, well, it's not part of the Mosaic covenant, but it's in the preamble in Exodus 19 that Israel were to be a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. They never were. A light to the nations? Well, when there's a light, the nations look at it. Do you see? and are drawn to it. Do you see that? But they never fulfilled that. Does that mean God scrapped it? His plan for Israel was just, well, they're not up to the task, so we'll just put that one on the back burner. We'll just throw that one in file 13. No. God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. This is a creation project. 
But because he's dealing with sinful human beings, sinful human beings can't bring about his purposes, ever. Israel couldn't in the Old Testament, we can't in the New Testament. The church even can't do it. How do we know that? If we've been a Christian long enough, you're well aware of that. We all, we're always messing stuff up. Okay? None of us are as interested in truth as we ought to be. None of us are interested in obeying God the way we ought to be. We're all petty and we're all you know, materialistic and we're all looking at things we shouldn't be looking at as far as the allurements of the world and you know, our own comforts and stuff. We're not interested in holiness or the things that we ought to be interested in, are we? No. I mean, we're not. Not really. Not many of us. And that includes me, by the way. So, so we're not up to the job either. Of course, we're Gentiles ourselves. But this doesn't mean that this plan has, uh, that God has is, is a reject. Uh, righteousness and the Holy Spirit... Well, we have to come back to that. What about fruitfulness, the productivity of, of nature? Which one's that? That's creation the productivity, the fruitfulness of nature. What could that be? At least it takes into itself. It's some of the same stuff here, isn't it? The, the animal kingdom and so on. Yeah, the, the order of nature. So this at least takes into itself the Noahic covenant. Because it's the world. Salvation. Mm. And the marriage of Israel's land. What's that? When we're dealing with Israel, the land of Israel, the people of Israel, what covenant are we dealing with usually? Abrahamic. Abrahamic. Okay. So, notice that in these passages, all these covenants are mixed together. Do they contradict each other? No, they don't at all. So can you see that the covenants, you see, what they're doing is that they, they, they have, uh, how can I describe them? Bread. The, the what? Bread. No, no, the covenants are, uh, think of them as individual artists who have got their own bit to paint in the picture. So the Noahic covenant paints a bit of a picture and of course the first thing the Mosaic covenant is going to do is give you the platform or the frame for the picture to be drawn. Okay, the uniformity of nature is guaranteed by the Noahic covenant. The fact that there's going to be no flood coming you know, upon the earth guarantees that the seasons will be the way that they are. Okay, so there's your platform for uh, the stage of history. So we think of the Noahic covenant as, a, as the frame, in a sense. But because it's made with the whole of nature, there are elements of it that are drawn into these other uh, prophetic words. Um, the uh, the Abrahamic covenant, of course, has to do with Abraham's seed, 
the land that's given to Abraham and his descendants and then blessing for the Gentiles through Abraham. Okay? So three, three elements that are in the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant paints in a, quite a big piece of the picture. Uh, the uh, Davidic covenant, kingship, priestly covenant... We haven't kind of encountered that that I can think in these passages that we've looked at, but we will do in a sec. <laughs> but the priestly covenant is that which may, is made with Phineas, which has to do with the temple ministrations or tabernacle ministrations. Um, and well, that's about it. Yeah. And, but it's all this other stuff. You know, righteousness, salvation, safety, um, you know, people coming to this individual that's something else it's promised in Isaiah it's promised as far back as Deuteronomy it has to do with an individual it has to do with things that he does by his very presence but it isn't covenantal right now but I just notice it all right Let's go to a different uh, kind of text here. I'm going to move all the way to the end of the Old Testament, to Malachi. Now, Malachi was another passage that I wanted you to read. Did you read it? Malachi 3, I think. Excuse me. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Um, the first part of that is quoted in the Gospels concerning John the Baptist. It's mixed with uh, the, uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3. Okay? So it has to do with John the Baptist. So who, John the Baptist prepared the way for who? Jesus. Jesus. We know that, okay? We can kind of put that bit of information in. We're not twisting anything, spiritualizing anything, reading the New Testament into the Old. We just know that piece of information. Okay? Um, but what about some of this other stuff? He will suddenly come to his temple. Well, that could be, you know, Christ coming to his to the Jerusalem temple, which didn't receive him very well. Even the messenger of the covenant. This is a messenger of a covenant. Again, covenants are vital. In whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Well, a lot of people could. In fact, some people had no trouble at all enduring the day of his coming, apart from the fact they wanted to kill him. I mean, they couldn't endure him being around, but they went on with their tasks, they went on with their jobs, nothing was greatly affected, and they thought they'd done him to death. 
Who can stand when he appears? Well, plenty of people could when he first came. But is that really what's going on here? Let's see. For he is like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. There's that word again. All right, would Jesus, did Jesus do any of that? Did he purify the sons of Levi? No. I think not. Did he come as a refiner? Of, you know, like a fire? I mean, did he come like that? Not really, did he? Is Jesus meek and mild? What's going on here? He, this, this person is, uh, is going to affect the sons of Levi. He's coming to the temple to affect the sons of Levi. That means that there's got to be a temple there when the sons of Levi are purged. And righteousness it comes in. Can you see, um, it's a leading question, I understand this is a leading question, but can you see two comings here? And are they not fused together? This is how the prophets present this individual. They don't give you a time gap. They present it as one work. We'll see this again and again. But in this passage, um, and we'll come back to it at another time, but in this passage, what I think we have in verse 2 particularly, and I think that him coming to his, the temple is also second coming because of the sons of Levi in verse 3, uh, what we have here is a reference to the first coming and the second coming as we know it from our vantage point. From, our, from Malachi's vantage point, it's one coming. Okay? You okay with that? From Malachi's vantage point, for all the people reading Malachi and knowing the rest of the prophets knew, there's one coming. He's going to come and he's going to set up all this. Uh, we can add to our list though, can't we? Because now we can say that the Levites will offer in righteousness because they'll be cleansed. And as we saw, what covenant is that? Priestly. Priestly. Priestly Covenant, Numbers 25. Okay. From the perspective of the Old Testament, is, does any of this clash? From the perspective of the New Testament, does it clash? And that's a, again, you can't win with a question like that. Uh, well, you know, if you're thinking Book of Hebrews, 
I understand what you're thinking. So, how does this not clash, if it's second coming, how does it not clash with the book of Hebrews? And all of that language about uh, Jesus, you know, once for all sacrifice. And the, the, the offering's not doing anything to take away sin. How does that, you know, how does it clash? And the answer is, in the next course. <laughs> Because we're not reading the New Testament right now. But I will tell you this, I will tell you this, some of the answer is in the fact that the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. Never. So, if they never took away sin in the first place, they were obviously in the old covenant in the uh, Mosaic cult they were um, leading up to the Lamb of God who took, took away the sin of the world but in and of themselves I hope that you can see that they didn't take away sin they didn't purge the conscience that is what uh, the righteous of the Hebrews is saying uh, as a validation, one of his validations of the need for the new covenant. Yet, don't think that that completely does away with the Levites because it does, even though it does away with the Mosaic covenant, it doesn't do away with this covenant. And this covenant is not a bilateral or contingent covenant. It's unilateral made by God and it's everlasting it's made within the era of the old covenant but so is the Davidic covenant but it transcends the Mosaic covenant Malachi chapter 4 not Malachi chapter 4 Micah chapter 4 And this was another place that I asked you to read. Who actually did any of this reading? Very good, very good, very good. And you guys weren't here, so it's definitely all right. <laughs> okay, pay attention. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house does that remind you of anything that we've read tonight? Isaiah 11, yeah? Shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. Now you've got parallelism there which explains what uh, established on top of the mountains means. It means that that mountain will be exalted. Not necessarily it's the biggest mountain. It just means that that mountain will be the exalted mountain. And people shall flow to it. Okay, the Gentiles will seek him. He's going to act as a magnet. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Uh-oh, what's that? What's the house of the God of Jacob? What is it? When, when they read that, what did they 
what would they think? Temple, wouldn't they? Yeah, they would think of a temple. He will teach us his ways. He will, we shall walk in his paths. They want to learn righteousness. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You say, ah, there's the law. There's the law. So that's the Mosaic Covenant. Here we go again. We're under, you put us under the law. Uh-uh. No. This doesn't necessarily mean the Mosaic law. Okay, Torah means instruction anyway. It doesn't mean, you know, the law. Okay? Moreover, if you look at the Ten Commandments, there's only one commandment that's not universal. And that's the one to keep the Sabbath day holy, which was given as a sign to Israel, as we'll see. The others are universal. They're always binding. It's always wrong to put other gods before uh, other things before God or to make an idol of God or to worship any idols or dis- dishonor your father and your mother or to commit adultery or to covet. This is always wrong. Okay? Lying is a slightly different one uh, which we'll get into at another time. But there are times when if I can just say this, if you think of uh, uh, the midwives, for example, that in order to save the babies had to lie. You think of Rahab, she's commanded in the book of Hebrews for lying. You say, well, how can that be? Well, it's because we live in a fallen world and sometimes if you tell the truth, you actually get in bed with evil. So Corrie Tamboon, if uh, the Nazi stormtroopers have been knocking on her door saying, you've got any Jews in here? And she said, yeah, they're upstairs. Okay? Would not have been acting righteously. Therefore, she'd have been acting against the truth by telling the truth. Do you see? You've got to think about this. Because it's the world we live in. She said no, because they were agents of evil out to do evil. So she said no, but in saying no, she actually protected them and protected the truth. Because truth is not just truth-telling. Truth is righteousness. Do you see? It's rectitude. And we do not live in a perfect world. Anyway, I say that. that, that, You have to take my ethics course if you want to go into that more. But... um, But it is important. It's important that you understand that. But as far as I mean, unless a unless a Nazi stormtrooper or someone else or you know ISIS guard or something is knocking on your door, it's always absolutely universally wrong to lie. Do you see? Yeah, but he sinned when he did that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and if you differ from me there, because John's making a funny face over there at me when I said that, that's fine, that's fine, I, you know, it's not a, a biggie. My main point here is uh, just to say that the law stands for righteousness, do you see? And the main aspects of the law are not the, 
not, not the ceremonial cult or anything like that. That was important for the theocracy of Israel and was, the law was one and yet the prophets were more concerned with social justice and righteousness and the hearts, just like Jesus was. You see? All right. And I know that I'm dealing with that kind of, I'm giving it short shrift, but I hope that those remarks at least help a little bit in this. Okay, so we'll continue here. So the law shall go out, go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. So again, here's this idea of of a judge and uh, somebody who has power to rebuke uh, erring nations. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Where's that from? We saw it last week. It's in Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. Yeah. You say, well, how on earth did Micah and Isaiah, who were contemporaries, um, are they copying from each other or something? Well, maybe. I mean, they've probably heard each other preach. They may have been given the same message by the Holy Spirit. So what? But look at this. Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. There's John's uh, no danger. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk in the name of his God. That's kind of a strange thing. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That's kind of an oath, a declaration. Okay, There are people that are walking in erroneously after other gods but we will walk in the name of our God Okay, and he goes and he talks about the remnant uh, and so on and the Lord himself verse 7 reigning over them in Mount Zion Okay, how do we deal with um, with verse 5 people walking each in the name of his God well what's he doing He's judging these nations. So some of them are walking in the name of their God. They're committing idolatry. They're wicked. Um, But you have here in verse 7 the king reigning, but who is he? What's his identity now? He's actually God. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the Hebrew term. That's a tetragrammaton. Okay, that's the, uh, the word for God, Yahweh, his personal name. By the way, tetragrammaton is tetra for grammatos writing. Okay, four letters. That's all that means. But it's a nice kind of a hundred dollar word that you can just throw out there and impress people with no 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 um, well Yahweh in this context is the father but Yahweh can refer sometimes and does refer in the Old Testament sometimes to the second person and yeah some Psalms for example yeah but anyway yeah so uh, 
this person then, who's the king, who's the branch and so on, he's actually the Lord. He's going to reign in Zion. That puts a big cast on things, doesn't it? Now can you understand you know, some of this stuff? When he is present, the world changes. The world starts to reflect his character. Such is the, um, the immensity of his power and his peace and his righteousness that it changes everything around it transforms everything when Jesus comes back as the Prince of Peace he doesn't come back as a lowly Galilean he comes back in power extraordinary power Star Wars has got nothing on the second coming he comes back in power nobody gets in his way he clears everything away and he sets up his reign of peace. But, hold on a minute, because there's something else in this passage that doesn't fit. It's, it's, it's like, it spoils the picture. And that is, that we've seen before, although I think here it comes out more closely, um, that you have unsaved people here. You have uh, idolaters here. You have wicked people here. Well, hold on. How does that fit into this this uh, dominion? Uh, you you have, and I'm going to write it down here. Okay, you still have sin. This isn't heaven. Something else, by the way, that we've missed, although you, you guys have commented on it, but we haven't put it on the board. But there's been mention of children. What do you think of that? Yeah. Exactly. Reproduction. There's still children, which means there's still marriage. This is not heaven. Right now we're not calling it anything because that's New Testament. What we're doing is we're painting a picture. Is this coherent? From the Old Testament perspective, is it coherent? As far as expectations are concerned, yes. You have problems from a New Testament. You bring the New Testament as a uh, kind of a jig to put over the top of it. Okay? A framework to see or a lens through which to, to view this. Does it become distorted? In certain readings of the New Testament, yes, it will distort this. Which is what we're trying to avoid. Um, so... Um, the last thing that I want to focus on here have you got all of this down please get this down it's, it is important um, alright hold on a sec 
I'm letting the brain settle. Um, yeah, I should have a drink, shouldn't I? Um, what we have here, therefore, is certainly various texts, and we've only looked at a few of them. We'll look at a lot more that paint this picture. And I'm going to wipe this board clean for next week, and we're going to put more information up. A lot of it's going to look like this. You're going to see it again and again and again and again. It's going to be reinforced in your mind. And it needs to be reinforced because I want you, as I've said, to have that expectation that an Old Testament saint would have or that the disciples would have from having this because this is all they had. Um, okay, what was I going to say? You ever get like that? This this dazzling thought comes into your head. It's like one of those firecrackers that just peters out after a couple of seconds and it's gone. That's what's just happened to me. Uh, so rather than than have a pained look on my face while I try and rummage in my uh, psyche here we'll we'll finish off by looking at one of my favourite passages in Zephaniah two points for finding out where Zephaniah is Chapter 3. Now before, you, um, before we go through the passage, let's just call attention to verse 17 and get it out of the way. Okay, everybody knows Zephaniah 3.17. They just don't know it in the context. The Lord your God... In your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And Christians say, yeah, that's written to me. So, I've heard many Christians apply that to themselves. But it's not written to you. Don't worry, you've got plenty of promises for you. You're not, you know... Yeah, you're not going to go wanting with anything. But let's read it in its context. And we'll start, because there is a a gap, uh, a break here in the chapter. We could read the whole chapter, but we'll start from verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Bad news. When's that happened? When's that happened? Hasn't happened. Okay. 
Well, it fits in with what we might uh, know about the second coming. But, for then I will restore to the peoples, to the nations here, a pure language or one tongue. What have you got there in your translations? Verse 9, yeah. Okay. What, what uh, version have you got? Yeah, I thought that was a new international. New international, you've got to be careful of new international. It does paraphrase sometimes. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I don't either, but that's a personal opinion. You're perfectly welcome to it. Um, any of you got anything else here? You've got change the speech? Where, what version have you got? New American Standard? That's... New English, okay. Well, the New English is, has... Uh, ESV. Okay, the ESV does paraphrase as well. Yeah, does paraphrase occasionally. The NASB, what have you got? For then I will give to the people purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. All right. So, pure language, purified lips, okay. One language, whatever. Notice, though, that what's happening in verse 9 is in concord with a change of heart, with people seeking the Lord, with, uh, when it talks about purified lips, remember that uh, uh, Jesus said in, in Mark 9 or 7, one of those two, he, he says, uh, out of the heart... Okay, comes forth, you know, evil thoughts, blasphemies, adulteries, all, all blasphemies, evil thoughts. It comes out of the mouth, out of the heart, out of the mouth. Uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, you can see here that it's not just what's on the tongue, it's also what's in the heart that's being dealt with here. There's an utter change that they may call on the name of the Lord. You can't call on the name of the Lord out of a false heart. We saw this last week with Isaiah in chapter 1. You know, I'm fed up with all this stuff. Take it away. Your, your hypocritical worship. I don't want it. Okay? He doesn't like that. He doesn't like all this hypocrisy. To serve him with one accord. No church splits. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia... My worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering in that day. Notice the repetition of that phrase, by the way. It doesn't always, not always eschatological, but often it is. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty. In my holy mountain. We've read about the holy mountain before. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people. We've read about them. And they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness. So this is talking about a future remnant of Israel. It's not talking about all 
Israelites. Talking about a particular chosen group. And speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. There it is again. No one shall make them afraid. We're back on the board again, you see. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Write that down. Mark it up. Do something with it. You shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. This language of peace and safety is really important in the prophets and it's nearly always eschatological. Which means last days, last things. Okay. Zion, let your hands... Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So when, when love is um, unalloyed with you know, all of the other things that, that sometimes we bring with it. Um, it. It doesn't do what it ought to do. But when love has the kind of attributes that it has in First Corinthians 13, do you see? And it's committed and it's, it's humble and it's pure and it seeks the truth and so on, then a person feels safe at its approach. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. The reproach is a burden. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. You see this, you're going to see this all again again, again and again. Excuse me. Israel has been uh, persecuted and they're going to be persecuted in the future. Israel uh, are, are constantly under attack. They're even now, the public enemy number one, according to the United Nations. Um, and Hollywood. Behold, at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring you back. Who is he talking to? Israel, Zion. Yeah, good. Even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise. Well, fame and praise among who? Among all the peoples of the earth. It's in the next verse. Or the next next passage. Sorry? Fame and praise for what? Making it? 
just because he values them. Remember that we've already seen that Israel is a peculiar treasure to, uh, to God. When I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord, Israel will be on top. Israel's never been on top. Okay, but Israel will be on top here. Uh, the singing, I will sing over you, I'll rejoice over you. That's the language of marriage. Okay? When I married Gina, I didn't sing to her. Okay? Not the thing to do. Because I don't. Eh? You sang to her before you got married. Well, I'm joking. I've not got much of a voice. I would dance with her, but she doesn't dance anyway. But, um, but it's the kind of the language of marriage. Okay? He said, you can't have everything. No. <laughs> um, so, is there anything that we need to put on this board then to kind of fill it out before we wipe it all off? And I think we need to now uh, put here Israel on top. Yeah, the enemy's trying to beat them down and destroy them all this kind of one of these days, one of these days, be on top. All right. So we've got a, we've got a picture here. Last comment. Last, I promise you, last thing I'm going to say. Um, we've got a picture here, and this is all great stuff. And then you've got this three-letter word down here that ruins it all. Well, it doesn't ruin it all, though, because of this guy. I mean, it's present, but I should even put a, a small s here. Because it, although it's present, it doesn't work its way into the world, into nature into the human heart, at least not so much into the human heart, and into the, uh, the kingdoms of the world as it does today. And the reason is because of the presence of this individual. Now, alright, this individual in Mark chapter 4 said to the disciples, we're going to um, go to the other side of the lake. He was tired, so he got into the stern of the boat and he fell asleep. What he didn't say, by the way, he didn't say, we're going to the other side, it's all going to be a nice hunky-dory, peaceful, tranquil journey. He just says, we're going, we're going to go to the other side. Well, it wasn't. So a squall comes up, even fishermen that were on the boat started to panic. They started to panic because they were not like Abraham, on Mount Moriah who was thinking through his faith you see his faith guided his reason okay rather their reason was we're going to die and they didn't have any faith okay <laughs> if you let your reason go first you won't have faith faith is supposed to guide your reason and then you'll see things God's way now um, so they wake him up don't you care that we're perishing? So he gets up and immediately he rebukes the wind and the waves and it says that there was a great 
calm. And then he rebukes the disciples for waking him up and not having any faith. Okay? And they are amazed at who can do this? Who can quiet the wind and the waves? Well, if they've read the Psalms and they probably knew them very well, they would know that only God does that. And by the way, that's one of Mark is, is in Mark 4. Uh, Mark is, is actually alluding to that. Okay? He's actually telling the alert reader, this is God. Now, um, what is he doing in Mark 4? He is taking upon himself the prerogatives that he's laid down just for a little bit so that uh, disciples don't lose it. And he is uh, exercising his divine prerogatives upon his creation. It is contrary creation, but he's still Lord of it. And when the Lord speaks to the creation, it obeys him. Even a fallen and cursed creation obeys him. And it will obey him, especially when he comes back, the resurrected Lord, back to this earth which was made for him. And in doing that, he can bring about not just uh, you know, the subsidence of the, the storm, he can bring about peace everywhere. He can bring streams in the desert. He can uh, bring the productivity of, to the land. He can make the wilderness like a, a, a you know, garden. He can do all of these wonderful things. There's one thing that he can't do in this world. And um, what he can't do is take away the stain... Notice the word, the stain of sin. Or, what I might... The curse. God cursed the earth. Now, there's much more to say on this little thing here. So, you know, we're going to stop here. But by his presence, by his power, he will... um, affect these changes but please understand he will affect them um, by himself they will not be changes that the earth can bring forth of itself and that's a problem so with that little cliffhanger we'll, we'll stop any questions or anything before we pray Free will, so man has free will, it's be trouble. All right. Anything else? Uh, New King Jimmy. Anything else? All right. Well, thank you. There's quite a lot of material there. Yes, Ken. Oh, yeah, yeah, for next week. Um, so go over Zephaniah chapter 3 again. And then. Go to Isaiah 65. Zephaniah 3, Isaiah 65. And Jeremiah 30. 
In fact, no. Jeremiah 30 and 31. 